The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled Expanding Treatment Options in ER-Positive HER2-Negative Breast Cancer. Expert Perspectives on the Rapidly Emerging Role of SIRDs, SIRMs, and CIRCAs, and the Practical Considerations of Leveraging Established and Innovative Therapies. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash HCA860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available. So welcome uh, to our educational session today. We're going to be talking about the expanding treatment options in ER-positive disease and the rapidly emerging role of SIRDs, SIRMs, and CIRCAs. I'm Erica Hamilton. I lead the Breast Cancer Research Program at Sarah Cannon in Nashville, Tennessee, and I'm joined by two fabulous colleagues. Uh, Ditya, we'll hand it over to you to introduce yourself next. Thank you, Erica. Uh, hello everyone, I'm Aditya Bardia, breast medical oncologist at Massachusetts General Hospital, Boston. Looking forward to the discussion today. And Surat? Yeah, uh, Surat Chandralapati. I'm a medical oncologist at uh, Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center in New York. Thanks so much for being here. So recognizing gaps and unmet needs in ER-positive disease, I think we're all learning this. Um, certainly, even prior to San Antonio in 2021, we saw the results of Veronica really showing in the post-AI CDK4-6 setting that fulvestrin is not performing as well as we would typically expect. So certainly, endocrine therapy and CDK4-6 uh, resistance uh, does develop, uh, and post-CDK4-6, uh, the benefit from therapies and how patients do is more poor um, than we have classically thought of. Certainly over on the right, you see uh, emerging agents and it comes as a word salad, CIRM, SIRDs, PROTAX, CIRANS, and CIRCAs. And we're gonna talk about many of these classes today. So let's go into current standards of care and guideline recommendations. This is a very busy slide, but this is the NCCN guidelines, essentially really just summarizing that first-line therapy is endocrine therapy in combination with a CDK4-6 inhibitor. There are certain situations that we may use fulvestrant instead of aromatase inhibitors, but really aromatase inhibitors and CDK4-6 is the standard. In the second line, there's a variety of options. Certainly uh, fulvestrant, we have uh, the PI-3, uh, inhibitor alpalisib approved. We can fall back on endocrine therapy with everolimus as well. And so we're going to get into some of the details uh, as we go through this today. So I'm going to turn the next session over uh, to Surat for us. So uh, what we thought would be useful in sort of thinking about these different endocrine therapies was to begin, I think, with a case. Um, and so even though we're not going to, you know, closely track this case, I think it's useful for us to keep it in mind. Uh, so this case is a 54-year-old woman who uh, originally was diagnosed with stage 2 ERPR positive or 2 negative breast cancer about four years ago and uh, got standard care and adjuvant uh, AC and Taxol and then was uh, placed on an aromatase inhibitor. Uh, eventually developed right hip pain and imaging showed lytic bone lesions and uh, was a biopsy of the liver revealed, uh, again, ER po PR positive, HER2 negative breast cancer. Uh, there was uh, next generation sequencing done and that showed uh, uh, an activating PIK3CA mutation. 
she started therapy on fulvestrant with palbociclib and developed progression after about two years on therapy. And so as we think about this patient, just keep it in mind, what are sort of some of the options and why might we be thinking about these different options, whether it's fulvestrin plus alpelisib, exemestane plus everolimus, uh, capecitabine, or clinical trials of some of the new novel ER targeting agents. All right, so, so let's think a little bit about these different endocrine therapies. First, by way of background, uh, how is it that endocrine therapies work? Uh, and endocrine therapies work uh, based around the fact that estrogen is a lineage driver for both normal mammary cells as well as breast cancer cells. And where does estrogen come from? Estrogen comes from uh, both uh, ovarian as well as uh, non-ovarian production of androgens that are converted to estrogen. And as shown in this diagram, that estrogen then uh, binds to the estrogen receptor in the breast cancer cell, uh, and then that activated unit then leads to transcription. And so then how do the drugs work? Well, the drugs can either work by preventing the body from making estrogen, uh, and those are the aromatase inhibitors, as shown in panel B, or uh, by interfering with the estrogen receptor, directly binding the estrogen receptor and preventing uh, estradiol from binding. And so both CIRMs and CIRDs and even PROTEX, all of these molecules work by binding the same place that estrogen would normally bind. The effects of that, however, can be different based on the actual drug. So CIRMs like tamoxifen or others bind in a way that still leads to ER doing something. Um, uh, it may be mostly inactive, but it may be active in some tissues. And so that's why we get things like uh, uterine uh, hyperplasia with drugs like tamoxifen. With the CIRDs, uh, like fulvestrin, we get uh, really a complete inactivation of the receptor. Uh, and so while it's still there, uh, it goes to the nucleus and it is uh, ultimately in a sort of uh, inactive place and is eventually degraded. And then these more recent drugs like Protax actually lead to a stimulated degradation of the receptor. And so you lose estrogen receptor uh, because not only do you inactivate it through the binding of the drug, but that drug tethers in uh, and what's called an E3 ligase that then leads to complete uh, degradation of the receptor. So these are all different ways of ultimately inactivating the estrogen receptor itself. So um, there are a lot of these different uh, ER-targeted agents. Those are uh, classes, and then these are the different ones that uh, are in current phase one or two testing. Uh, there are actually more than are on this list. Um, I, I don't think that we need to necessarily go through all of these different uh, agents specifically, although we will give examples of several of them that are in uh, different phases of development as we go through today. Um, the point is I think all of them are really geared towards targeting, retargeting ER in a different way than the aromatase inhibitor was targeting estrogen production. And uh, why might we do that? Well, we've had great success in breast oncology over the years by just retargeting uh, the estrogen receptor. So we 
originally used a drug like tamoxifen and then found that an aromatase inhibitor worked after that. So the cancer has some addiction to estrogen receptor signaling and uh, when it develops resistance to these drugs, it often does so in a way that reactivates ER. Um, and one of the principal ways that we see that clinically is through these estrogen receptor mutations. And so many of us have done next generation sequencing uh, on our patients and seen these mutations that come up. What are these mutations and what are their implications for drugs like uh, SIRDS? Um, well, again, SIRDS work through um, stimulating an inactive receptor that ultimately gets degraded. Um, and fulvestrin, while it is a potent ER degrader, uh, and SIRD, um, in vitro, when we give it in vivo, as most of us know, it's a, you know, intramuscular injection that's given uh, monthly. Um, and that sort of bioavailability may be a limitation uh, for the drug over the long haul. And so there have been the development of oral versions of these drugs that uh, we think maintain a much higher level uh, and so lead to more complete inhibition of the receptor. And that's especially important with these ER mutations because um, they're more active, they're constitutively active, and so having more drug available uh, might be critical in order to completely inhibit these mutant receptors. On this um, slide here, we're just showing that uh, we know that these receptors, are, these mutant receptors are constitutively active and that clinically drugs like aromatase inhibitors really don't do very much against the mutant receptor. Why? Because these mutant receptors don't need estrogen to be active. So blocking estrogen production does very little, whereas ER antagonists like fulvestrin uh, can have some efficacy. Now, I want to caution by saying it isn't the only way that we see endocrine resistance occur. It is not the only genomic alteration that is seen in our patients who have metastatic breast cancer and who've progressed on, uh, whose cancer has progressed on a hormone therapy. We do see other alterations as well. And um, while we're, we're not going to go through all of them, I just want to say that there are many uh, classes, if you will, of resistance mutations, many of which are actually acquired in the metastatic setting. And that's one of the critical points um, as we think about next generation sequencing to figure out endocrine resistance. Um, many of these alterations like ESR1 activating mutations in HER2 or NF1, um, as well as um, inactivating mutations in NF1, sorry, um, as well as others within the MAP kinase pathway. These are um, alterations that are increasingly seen in, in, in prevalence in the metastatic setting compared to the primary setting. In many cases, they may be acquired over time. Uh, that means that as we think about doing next generation sequencing to profile uh, what mutations might be present in our uh, patients and what treatment options might be available, we really want to think about the most contemporary uh, biopsy to look for uh, these alterations. If we go back to the primary that was um, resected four years ago, uh, we're likely going to miss any ESR1 mutations. We may be missing other important alterations as well, and, and some of these are uh, tar targetable and have implications for the therapies that we choose. 
So just to uh, very quickly say what specific ESR1 mutations might we be seeing when we pull up that genomic report. Uh, shown here is a cartoon diagram of the ESR1 gene. And uh, the major mutations that we're looking for that cause aromatase inhibitors not to work um, are these mutations in the part of the gene, part of the protein that binds to estradiol, of course. And so uh, these are all in the ligand binding domain. And these are the uh, four or five most common uh, mutations in uh, 536, 7, and 8, and uh, E380, as well as S463. These are all mutations that have been shown in the lab and in the clinic to be associated with resistance to aromatase inhibitors. And, um, you know, one of the things that has been sort of considered is how can we act upon these mutations quicker if we find them? How can we sort of translate what I've described about how the mutations cause resistance to aromatase inhibitors and uh, try to target them then with a drug like fulvestrin? And this was uh, one way, and this was realized in a clinical trial, was recently reported uh, with the PADA-1 trial, where they um, had patients who were treated with uh, standard of care aromatase inhibitor plus uh, pambocyclib and first-line metastatic breast cancer, and tracked patients uh, using uh, cell-free DNA to look for the mutation profile, specifically looking for ESR1 mutations, and then randomized patients at uh, the point at which they might have acquired an ESR1 mutation to either continue on with therapy or to switch to uh, fulvestrin to, to try to target that, um, that ESR1 mutation. And uh, shown here is the um, patients who were um, uh, randomized. And then uh, on the next slide, I think we have really what are the outcomes of these patients in whom there was a uh, ESR1 mutation detected, and then uh, they were either uh, switched or not. And, and you can see here uh, many patients who had clearance of that mutation as a consequence of, um, of going on to uh, fulvestrin. Um, and so what these data really tell us is the potential for targeting ESR1 mutations whether or not we should be switching patients on uh, as they are on uh, AI plus palpocyclob, I think is still to be determined, but I, th I think that it at least provides us with the biologic and uh, potentially clinical translation that, that targeting these mutations with uh, a drug that's actually going to bind the mutant receptor um, has real potential to uh, uh, change the trajectory of the disease. So again, um, we have a number of potential agents uh, and uh, that, that are currently in clinical trial testing, um, shown here, some further along than others. Um, what are these SIRDs? Um, and um, for that, I think we'll turn it back over to you, uh, Erica. Great. So Aditya, I'm gonna have you cover uh, the next section on some of the data um, from San Antonio. Sounds great. 
So let's move on to surge. We'll start with the Emerald trial. This was presented at the San Antonio Breast Cancer Symposium in 2021. A randomized phase three trial looking at an oral surd was a standard of care endocrine therapy. Uh, this is a first phase three trial with an oral surd. Uh, looking at the agent in the second, third line ER positive metastatic breast cancer setting. So it was for patients who are uh, postmenopausal or men uh, who've received one to two lines of endocrine therapy and had measurable disease or bone only disease uh, that was evaluable. The trial had two uh, inclusion criteria that are important to mention. The first being that the trial required patients to have disease progression on prior CDK4-6 inhibitor, uh, consistent with current guidelines where CDK4-6 inhibitors are recommended as the first line uh, therapy. And the second was that the trial uh, allowed one line of prior chemo for metastatic disease. Uh, patients were randomized to receive the oral surd elacestrant at 400 milligrams once daily versus physician's choice of endocrine therapy, which could be fulvestrant, which is what the majority of patients received, uh, versus an aromatase inhibitor. Uh, in terms of stats, the trial had more than 90% power to detect a hazard ratio of 0.667 in all patients and an ESR1 mutant subgroup, more than 80% power to detect a hazard ratio of 0.61. The trial had uh, two co-primary endpoints, the first being progression-free survival in all patients, and the second being progression-free survival in patients with ESR1 mutations. In terms of baseline demographics and characteristics, uh, more than 450 patients were randomized uh, to either receive elacestrant or standard of care endocrine therapy. 239 received elacestrant, 238 standard of care. As expected from a randomized phase three trial, uh, the demographics were well balanced between the two arms, uh, age, gender, ECOG performance status, uh, it should be noted that majority of the patients in this trial had visceral metastases, um, about 70% of patients, and about 20-25% had received one prior line of chemotherapy. So this was a patient population that uh, had aggressive biology given the, given the visceral metastases and use of chemotherapy. So it's not surprising that majority of patients had received prior adjuvant therapy and the percentage of patients with bone-only disease was small. In terms of the results, uh, progression-free survival by independent review committee, uh, the trial met its primary endpoint. Uh, patients who received elacestrant uh, was a standard of care. Uh, the hazard ratio was 0.69, so 30% reduction in risk of progression or death in patients with ER-positive or to negative uh, metastatic breast cancer. Uh, and this was statistically significant. If you look at the median PFS, uh, the median PFS was 1.9 months uh, with standard therapy. So pretty much at the time of first restaging, uh, about half of the patients had disease progression. And this was slightly better with elacestrant, 2.79 months. And in terms of uh, patients with ESR1 mutation, as was reviewed by Sarath earlier, one of the mechanisms of resistance to endocrine therapy is the development of ESR1 mutations. And the presence of ESR1 mutations indicate two things. Uh, the first is that the tumor is estrogen independent, 
but still uh, dependent on ER. So agents that bind to ER would work in this setting. And second, it also signals that in the endocrine resistance setting, you're likely uh, dealing with a tumor that's still dependent on the ER pathway, as was nicely reviewed by Sarath. Uh, in the setting of endocrine resistance, second, third line setting, you can have tumors that are still dependent on the ER pathway, but you can also have tumors that are independent of estrogen and the ER pathway. And endocrine therapy is unlikely going to work if the tumor is completely dependent, uh, independent of the ER pathway. But SIRDs could potentially work uh, in tumors that are dependent on the ER pathway. And ESR1 is kind of a surrogate marker that signals that this tumor, despite this being in the second, third line setting, could still be dependent on the ER pathway. So in this setting, uh, looking at elacestrant versus fulvestrant, you could see uh, an improvement in progression-free survival, 45% reduction in risk of progression or death, uh, hazard ratio of 0.54, so almost doubling of uh, progression-free survival. But again, if you look at the absolute uh, median progression-free survival, it was 1.8 uh, versus 3.7, so approximately two versus four months. So while there was a doubling of survival, uh, the median progression-free survival uh, with elacestrant was about four months, um, indicating that we clearly need to do better in this setting. Now, if you look at the curves carefully, uh, it, you see that there's a drop uh, in the first few months. And so this is an important figure because it really captures the uh, benefit of this novel agent versus standard of care. So approximately half of the patients have disease progression uh, in the first two months with standard of care. And you also see a drop in elacestrant arm uh, early on. But then after that, you start seeing a separation of curves. And to me, this is important because the initial drop likely signals this endocrine resistant population or population where endocrine therapy, particularly as monotherapy is unlikely going to work. But then after that, you see a separation and that likely is a subgroup uh, where patients still have endocrine sensitive disease. So if you're evaluating two uh, agents you, that are endocrine therapy, you can see a separation. So in terms of landmark analysis at say six months, uh, patients who received elacestrant had a higher PFS rate at six months, 34.3%. So one in three patients versus 20.4% uh, with standard of care uh, therapy. And similarly, with uh, among patients with ESR1 mutations, you, you see a higher PFS rate at six months, 40.8% versus 19.1%. And if we extend that further to one year or 12 months, uh, again, you see that patients who received elacestrant had a higher PFS rate at 12 months, 22.3% versus 9.4% with standard therapy and similarly for ESR1 mutations as well. So the key is to identify patients that still have endocrine sensitive disease because in that setting, you can see uh, a clear benefit with a novel agent uh, that, that is likely better than standard of care therapy. In terms of uh, directly comparing elacestrant versus fulvestrant, about 70% of patients in the trial received fulvestrant. So comparing an oral SERD versus an intramuscular SERD, again, you see similar results. Uh, so hazard ratio of 0.68 in overall population and 0.50 or doubling of progression-free survival in patients with ESR1 mutations. Again, uh, the two points first that the absolute Median progression-free survival is still around four months, uh, so a need to do better in that setting. Uh, and the second point that you again see this drop initially 
in the curves and then you see a separation. So uh, clinically need to identify patients who likely have completely endocrine resistant disease versus endocrine sensitive disease. In terms of uh, subgroups, uh, essentially all the subgroups derive benefit with elacestrant uh, was a standard of care endocrine therapy, including number of prior lines, measurable disease, presence of visceral metastases, uh, prior treatment with fulvestrant. Uh, the subgroup that potentially did not derive benefit was patients who had received prior chemotherapy, but I would caution that the numbers are small, so we need additional validation uh, related to these results. And finally, in terms of overall survival, uh, there was a trend towards improvement in overall survival with elacestrant was a standard of care endocrine therapy. Uh, for the overall population, the hazard ratio was 0.75. And in patients with ESR1 mutation, the hazard ratio was 0.59 uh, with a p-value of 0.03. But these are interim analyses. Uh, the final analyses with mature data would uh, occur approximately a year from now. So it would likely be available in late 2022 or early 2023. In terms of uh, safety, majority of the patients had at least one treatment emergent adverse event. Uh, the incidence of grade three or four treatment related adverse event was low uh, in single digits. Uh, and so it's not surprising that AEs leading to discontinuation were infrequent in both arms, 6.3% with elacestrant and 4.4% with standard of care endocrine therapy. And there were no treatment-related deaths in either of the groups. And then finally, in terms of type of AEs, the number one side effect seen with elacestrant was nausea, 35%. So one out of three patients had nausea. The incidence of grade 3-4 nausea uh, was 2.5% with elacestrant. Other AEs like arthralgias or hot flashes are pretty much similar between elacestrant and standard of care endocrine therapy. And because fulvestrant is given as a shot, it was associated with pain that is associated with IM shots, which was not seen with the other oral therapies. So with that, I'll give it back to uh, Erica for discussion. Yeah, thank you so much. I think, uh, Sarat, you definitely set the stage about the estrogen receptor and kind of how these different drugs may work and um, lead to some differences. And certainly very excited to see the first phase three data from the oral CERD. Sarat, I may pose a question to you to start. You know, obviously, PI3 kinase mutations are actionable now with um, fulvestrin and alpalisib approved. That's kind of in the second line setting, so to speak. When do you routinely profile patients? And do you think ESR1 is actionable now? Or are you? Yeah, great questions, because you know we, we get these reports and they may come from different points in time and we have to decide in real time, what are we gonna do for our patients? So um, I think that right now, the as you laid out with the NCN guidelines, I mean, we can use PIK3CA mutations to guide us towards a um, uh, alpalisib. And um, the presence of an ESR1 mutation would tell us we really wouldn't want to combine that with an aromatase inhibitor. Um, the approval is with fulvestrin in, in any event, but I, I do think that as we start thinking about where are these, um, what, what, are, what are we going to combine our um, targeted agents with, whether it's a PI3K inhibitors or um, everolimus, um, 
I think we're going to want to use that ESR1 mutation to to say should we actually give an aromatase inhibitor. And I think that the main example where I'm I'm using it, for instance, is if I'm giving a patient uh, Everolimus, I could give them either uh, an aromatase inhibitor or fulvestrin. And if there's an ESR1 mutation, uh, we've shown in, with retrospective data, um, but also I think biologically we just know that fulvestrin is going to be the better partner for uh, for, for that scenario. So that's one instance where we're using it. Of course, with uh, we're excited to see whether um, the SR1 mutations will be informative for some of the um, the, the new SIRDs like uh, alisvestrant and, and whether approvals will be based around that, we don't know. But I, I think that um, the use of this information certainly should be shifting us away from aromatase hinders towards surge when we know it's present. Yeah, absolutely. That's very similar to how I use it in clinical practice. Aditya, I, I think you really kind of, um, you know, brought up one of the issues that I uh, thought of when I saw the curves um, as well for the first time with the oral surd is, you know, the percentage of patients that really just look like they weren't endocrine sensitive. And when I looked on the tail, you know, with oral CERD, you know, there was about 30% of patients where if they were on at eight months, they remained on at 24 months. So there's clearly this population that's getting great benefit. Uh, I, this is a lofty ask, but clearly this goes above, you know, just checking that they're still ERPR positive. Any ideas of how we may be able to select those patients that truly are endocrine sensitive or are going to benefit from the oral CERD? Yeah, absolutely. Great question. Um, and I think that would be the next phase of research, trying to identify what is this subgroup that had this rapid drop versus patients who uh, remained on the drug for a prolonged period of time. In the Emerald trial, we plan on looking at biomarkers um, such as activation of the P3 kinase, MAP kinase pathway, the things that Sarat mentioned in his talk that could contribute towards endocrine resistance. Um, and then also clinical pathological features like patients with bone mats only uh, versus patients with uh, hepatic mats, uh, also patients who derive benefit from a CDK4-6 inhibitor. So all of these patients had prior CDK4-6. Can we look at the duration of prior CDK4-6 inhibitor as just a marker of uh, endocrine sensitivity? So those are the things we would look at. Um, at this time, outside of ER, PR, and I guess ESR1 mutation, I'm not aware of other pathological uh, characteristics to look at, but certainly an area of ongoing research. Great, thanks so much. So Sarat, I'm gonna turn it back over to you to discuss some of the other CERDs. Yeah, and, and I think I, I wanna begin by saying it can feel indeed like a word salad while well, you've gone through one CERD. What do we need to know about these other CERDs? But remember, some of these small, um, and subtle differences in ER antagonists can lead to important differences uh, in terms of efficacy and in terms of toxicities. We don't know until we uh, really put these into the clinic. You know, you wouldn't be able to tell a difference between, say, fulvestrant and some of these other drugs when we looked in vitro in the lab. But the proof came when we looked clinically at how these worked. And so uh, we're going to go through a couple of the uh, CERDs that um, have looked promising in early phase uh, data. The first one uh, we'll talk about is amstinestrant. Um, and this is the uh, AMIRA study, which is a large phase one, uh, two study. Um, and in this 
um, data set that was reported uh, at San Antonio, the combination of amstenestrin with palbocycle was reported. And again, as Aditya alluded to, I think we are increasingly going to be interested in how these uh, new oral uh, ER antagonists perform in combination with uh, the targeted kinase inhibitors. Um, so here, looking at the combination and dose escalation um, in Part C uh, with palbocyclib and then uh, in Part D in dose expansion at the uh, recommended for Phase two dosing, which in this case was 200 milligrams of amstenestrant. Um, many of these patients, uh, these patients were all postmenopausal um, with uh, advanced breast cancer and had uh, only had no prior uh, CDK4-6 inhibitor uh, therapy in Part D in the expansion group. And shown here is the uh, activity that was seen uh, with amstenestrin plus palbocyclib uh, from 35 patients uh, who were in the response valuable population. You can see um, 34 percent of patients with a partial response and uh, 74% overall with uh, clinical benefit. And the waterfall plot shows the extent of, um, of responses uh, from this population. Again, this being a combination of uh, pavlocyclib together with amstenestrin. Um, and it notably is that uh, this activity was seen in patients who had ESR1 mutations and patients who uh, even had prior uh, chemotherapy in the advanced setting. So, um, you know, good data that you can combine this um, together with uh, a CDK4 inhibitor and um, see activity. And then in terms of toxicity, it was um, quite comparable to the to the toxicity seen with other endocrine uh, partners with a CDK4 inhibitor. Again, the, the number one uh, uh, toxicity related to amstenestrin uh, being nausea and about 18% of patients and, and no grade three or four um, nausea, as well as fatigue. And then um, some of these, of course, being related as well to um, potentially palbocyclib. There are, of course, now uh, multiple additional uh, studies with amstenestrin that are ongoing and uh, ought to be reporting um, in the next year, including um, uh, a study in the first-line setting, Amira 5, um, in combination with palmocyclib. In addition to amstenestrin, um, giridestrant, uh, or GDC 9545, was also studied uh, both as monotherapy and in combination with palmocyclib in the advanced setting uh, and reported by uh, Nick Turner and colleagues uh, at, at San Antonio. You can see here uh, the swimmer spot from the monotherapy and then the combination. And again, uh, really uh, compelling clinical benefit rates, 81% uh, in the combination with uh, palocyclib and 54% uh, for monotherapy. And what was reported in addition was some really interesting preclinical work, uh, or, or sorry, biomarker work that uh, looked at uh, patients who had biopsies, paired biopsies, uh, pre-treatment and on-treatment, uh, and looking at was ER signaling inhibited 
and was ER um, ultimately degraded? And what was the implication of ESR1 mutations on this? And you can see from these um, diagrams that there is a real strong downregulation of ER expression by immunohistochemistry. chemistry. There was also uh, data to show downregulation of ER signaling. So really showing in, in these patients, the, uh, a large percentage of whom had ESR1 mutations, that the drug was able to uh, block ER signaling and uh, degrade the ER receptor despite the presence of ESR1 mutations. And in many patients, uh, in looking using cell-free DNA, there was uh, multiple ESR1 mutations uh, observed. So again, there are uh, multiple um, other um, SIRDs in uh, different stages uh, of development with a um, large number of patients uh, who have been treated. And so uh, uh, it'll be really interesting to see as these move into phase three, similar to Emerald, how, how well they perform compared to fulvestrant, how well they combine with other CDK or uh, other targeted agents. Uh, how much can we, you know, leverage this better, more potent inhibition of ER, this uh, greater capacity for eliminating the receptor, together with trying to target uh, whatever that other oncogenic signal is, whether uh, that may distill down to CDK4 or, uh, or the PI3K mTOR pathway. Thanks so much, Sarad. I think um, that was excellent. You know, certainly I think the potential for oral SIRDs um, are in the post-CDK setting, even in combination in first line and perhaps even in the early stage settings as well. I guess I'll open a question up to both of you. Um, what do you think the differentiating factors are going to be with the oral SIRDs? Certainly there's um, over 10, maybe close to a dozen in development. Um, do you think it's going to be efficacy? Do you think it's going to be tolerability? And which um, side effects stand out to you? It's a tough question. Uh, I, I think that there are a couple of things. Uh, one thing that is sort of underrated is going to be, I think, um, in these combinations is going to be PK and the potential for interactions and the ability, the, whether you are getting the full effect of the combination partner or if there's any um, you know, attenuation of, say, CDK4-6 inhibition or PI3 kinase inhibition with your hormone agent, then uh, that could be a challenge. One of the things that we observed was uh, preclinically is that many of these pathways, they, they synergize. And so if you, uh, if you inhibit PI3K, for instance, you induce the estrogen receptor to even higher levels. And uh, one of the implications of that is that it makes fulvestrin again, a drug that's not quite at its full um, sort of potency in patients, not quite as good. And so trying to get the maximal ER inhibition becomes all the more important, especially if there's an ESR1 mutation present. So um, how these uh, drugs are able to accommodate those kinds of um, sort of interactions between the, the pathways is gonna be important. Are we fully inhibiting both parts of uh, that we're intending to. Yeah, I think that's a really important perspective. I, I think that um, side effects are going to matter a little bit too. I, I think it's very hard to compare kind of apples to apples across some of these earlier phase one studies with differing populations, et cetera. But 
you know, what we saw with CDK4-6 inhibitors is it was kind of the side effects that patients could feel that they cared about, right? They didn't so much care about asymptomatic neutropenia. Um, so I think that some of those differences may, may sort out a little bit as well. So let's move on to the next section that I'm gonna earn my keep and discuss here. Um, so these are the circas, the protax, and the serans. And hopefully you'll get a little bit of an understanding about how these compounds are different and how they may fit in with SIRDs and be a little bit different um, and play a different role for us here. So circa um, is H3B6545. Um, you can see clinical trials that are ongoing, um, single agent as well as in combination with palbocyclib. The CRAN, or complete estrogen receptor antagonist, is OP1250, um, and that's certainly um, ongoing in clinical trials as well. And then Arvinus, the proteolysis targeting chimera, which is another fancy way, really, to say uh, a degrader like a CERT as well, um, ARV471, um, that is also ongoing um, and is in combination with palbocyclob as well as a dose expansion currently. So let's dive in with H3B6545. So this is the CIRCA, so Selective Estrogen Receptor Covalent Antagonist. Um, so this was the phase one, two uh, study, and you can see 72, 72 patients were treated here. Um, partial responses in about 17% of patients, although I would really argue that it's not necessarily our response rate we care most about in metastatic ER positive disease. It's really the benefit patients are getting, so progression-free survival or clinical benefit rate. And if we do look down here to the conservative definition of clinical benefit rate, uh, complete response, partial response, as well as stable disease of at least 23 weeks, that's 40% here. So we also sorted this out for some of our other uh, correlative science uh, work that we could do. So those tumors that also had progesterone receptor positivity, you see potentially a little bit better activity there. And I would argue that that's really because estrogen and progesterone should go hand in hand. And if we see PR loss, potentially that's an indicator to us that that tumor isn't as dependent on the estrogen axis. And then over on the right, according to ESR1 mutation status, um, certain, certainly some of these clonal mutations um, also uh, have the ability to kind of predict a little bit better benefit. And again, ESR1 mutation is really a resistance mechanism that grows out due to the cell's dependence on estrogen. So another way to really select these tumors that very much care about estrogen. And so this is a phase two study of 6545 in advanced breast cancer. You can see some of the inclusion criteria um, as well as the exclusion criteria. No limit on prior hormonal therapies or CDK4-6 inhibitors. Um, certainly uh, looking at some of these ESR1 mutations as well and not allowing more than one uh, chemotherapy. And so if we look across uh, key subgroups uh, with the H3B6545 compound, you certainly see activity, whether patients have already received full vestrant, um, which really was the majority of patients on trial. We see activity uh, even when patients had already received a novel SIRD or a SIRM uh, across chemotherapy and number of regimens. So here's the uh, progression-free survival. Um, you can see the median months here is 3.8. And if we go over on the right and select for some of these ESR1 mutations, uh, we again see this lengthen not uh, different than the data that uh, Aditya presented. So um, with some of the clonal mutations, upwards of maybe five months or even seven months. 
And then here's the waterfall plot, which I think just gives us a good idea of the kind of benefit patients were receiving. So you really saw a little bit more than half having tumor shrinkage, um, and some of them, you know, quite significant shrinkage uh, with H3B. And then this is the phase 1B study. Uh, again, it's the circa in combination with palbociclib and a little bit tricky uh, to follow this, but really talking about how to escalate the H3B uh, versus the palbociclib um, in case we see more issues with neutropenia. And here is safety. Um, overall, this uh, compound really is tolerated quite well. Um, we see uh, a little bit of anemia, um, across with um, the CDK4-6, which is not surprising. Certainly we see leukopenia, which we would expect uh, with uh, CDK4-6, and not much thrombocytopenia. Uh, we do also have the side effect of bradycardia, which the H3B compound happens in about half of patients, and the vast majority of these patients, really all but um, just a couple, is grade one asymptomatic. Um, grade two is symptomatic, but no intervention needed. And we really don't see uh, a large uh, QT signal uh, with H3B either. And so what did we see when we combined with palbociclib? Uh, so you can see over on the left, the different cohorts here with the median uh, treatment duration in weeks along the bottom. And over on the right, the waterfall curve really uh, showing uh, benefit with two patients at the 300 milligrams with palbociclib at 100 milligrams, uh, really doing quite well there. We do think that um, potentially we get a little bit higher exposure uh, of the CDK4-6 when given in combination with H3B, so 100 milligrams may be plenty. And here is the PK. Um, again, um, no significant PK interaction, really. And so let's switch gears. Uh, this is uh, data presented at San Antonio about ARV471, which is the PROTAC or proteolysis targeting chimera. So it's a different uh, twist on a degrader. Um, over on the left, uh, you see uh, the swim lane plot. And I know this is probably very small on your screen, um, but there's asterisks over on the side uh, for prior CDK4-6, which you'll note everyone had already seen prior CDK4-6. About 80% of patients had seen full vestrant. And then we had 10% of patients that had already seen uh, an investigational oral SIRD, which I think um, is really fascinating if we track um, some of these responses. The clinical benefit rate in this population was 40% um, in the 47 evaluable patients. Um, and we certainly did not see uh, really differing responses based on whether patients had already seen investigational SIRD. So I think this can be important information when we think about sequencing or what a, drugs may have activity um, after our other drugs that are coming. Waterfall plot over on the right, also showing that we saw activity really across broad doses. So it does not appear that we need to be um, at the highest doses to get activity. And in fact, we did not see an MTD. And so into the expansion, we're carrying forward both 200 milligrams as well as 500 milligrams to figure out where we really need to be here. And so what did we see with safety uh, with ARV 471? really looked quite encouraging to my eyes. Um, nausea in about 30% of patients, and this was all grade one nausea except for one patient. Um, so I think that was reassuring to me. And fatigue, I thought, uh, also looked pretty good at only about 20% any grade fatigue. And again, this really being mild.
So in summary, um, you know, this is the first drug of its class presented here as a ProTac. Um, we saw activity in a phase one really heavily pretreated uh, patient population with a median of four priors, including some with oral CERD, um, with pretty minimal toxicity, compares pretty well from a GI standpoint as well as a fatigue standpoint. And so again, the Veritac cohorts enrolling two different doses in expansion. There's still the combination with palbociclib ongoing, and there are phase three studies planned as well. So Surat and Aditya, you know, I, I think not only do we have SIRDs, we, we also have a host of uh, other word salad compounds. Do you see a role for multiple of these um, in sequence, do you think? And a good question. I think um, it will be important to understand the differences, particularly related to common mechanisms of resistance. You know, one of the things that was interesting with H3B was this observation that even among ESR1 mutations, uh, Y537S uh, mutations in, in that subgroup, the median PFS was pretty high. It's a small subgroup, but could there be differences even based on the type of ESR1 mutations? And I think these nuances probably will differentiate uh, these uh, different agents. So based on the mechanism of resistance, one agent might be better than the other. And obviously the side effect profile. Sarad, any thoughts on that? Yeah, I agree. I think that, you know, one of the interesting things if we, if we think about another disease, prostate cancer, we get a lot of uh, mutations there that are um, the kinds that turn a um, mutant receptor, that turns a drug into an activator. Now, we don't see those with the aromatase inhibitor resistance ESR1 mutations. These are mainly just on receptors that our antagonists work. But we haven't really profiled patients after they've gotten ER antagonists uh, of different flavors like this. And so it is certainly possible that uh, the mechanism resistance to one mutation may be that something that sensitizes it to one of these other agents. So it'll be really interesting to look at uh, mutational profiles after patients have gotten, say, you know, an oral CERD or a Circa or uh, a Protac even. Yeah, absolutely. I, I completely agree with that. There was actually a fantastic talk at San Antonio by Dr. McDonald out of Duke, really um, showing you know how very small changes in these molecules can make a huge impact on really the function of the estrogen receptor and, and the shape and conformation that it takes. And so, you know, he really argued that you know these compounds, although they may seem very similar. Um, really can make a big difference. And it's probably not going to be across everybody. There's not going to be one that's best for every single patient, but different ones may be best for different patients and kind of a, a challenge of whether we're going to get smart enough to kind of figure that out and be able to stratify these patients based on some of the differences. So I'm going to turn it back over to Aditya, and I think we're going to go back to our case and kind of revisit that in light of some of the things we talked about and learned so far. Yes, coming back to the patient, coming back to the case. Uh, so 50-year-old um, female with history of stage 2 ER positive, her negative breast cancer, received standard therapy, then unfortunately had disease recurrence in the bone, commonly seen in the ER positive setting. Uh, also, hepatic meds, uh, biopsy revealed ER positive or to negative disease. Uh, patient also had NGS testing of the tissue, which revealed a PIK3CA mutation. Uh, so first line therapy, full western plus palbocyclib was started, which is very reasonable in this setting. 
worked for a couple of years and then the patient had disease progression. So now the question is what to choose next for this patient, uh, fulvestrant alpalacib, exemestinevrolimus, capsidabine, a clinical trial or something else. Uh, I'll just make a couple of points and would love to hear from the panel as well. I think so far the management has been exactly as uh, we, would, um, we would want. So this patient had disease progression on adjuvant AI. So in the first line setting, you would start uh, a different endocrine agent uh, and that being fulvestrant. And while the patient had PIK3C mutation at this time, in general, we would consider a CDK4-6 inhibitor because that does work for even PIK3C mutant uh, cancers. So that was appropriate as well. But now the question is what to consider for this patient. Uh, maybe I'll start with Erica. Erica, what would you consider uh, in this setting for this patient? Yeah, I think that was a great summary of the case. I mean, in an ideal scenario, um, you know, to use alpalisib, we would love it if the patient hadn't had fulvestrant, but that's not this patient's particular reality since they relapsed on that adjuvant aromatase inhibitor. I, I probably would still use fulvestrant alpalisib here. You know, they have the PI3 kinase mutation. This is targeted specifically for that mutation. You know, in earlier PI3 studies, there was single agent activity and you know, even in the light of the progression on fulvestrant, um, you think kind of using those compounds together um, really can provide some benefit. So, so I would be thinking about um, fulvestrant alpha for this patient. Surat, what, what would you do? Yeah, I think the same. You know, the only uh, sort of consideration would be if um, additional testing post the CDK4 inhibitor revealed a uh, P10 alteration as the mechanism resistance to palbociclib, I might, in that case, veer towards the uh, Everolimus uh, or Capecitabine options. One other thing I would just want to sort of bring out is, um, you know, we, we talked about how there were other um, sort of forms of endocrine resistance besides ESR1 mutations. And while these don't constitute the sort of 35, 40%, um, these the small subgroups represent large populations of patients who, for whom there actually may be some interesting uh, trial options. And so um, I, I just want to point a couple of those out because we should all be on the lookout for them. Uh, HER2 mutations are, are seen in this population and both uh, HER2 kinase inhibitors, as was presented in the summit trial, as well as HER2 antibody drug conjugates are being explored uh, in that space and showing some promising activity. And then uh, another small subgroup, and, and maybe not this patient, but some, again, germline BRCA2 mutations, uh, again, another small group of patients for whom uh, there is growing evidence that there is uh, some intrinsic endocrine resistance there. Uh, and, and we, of course, do have uh, options. And so did this patient have germline testing um, uh, to be sure that that's not a, a PARP inhibitor isn't an option. But um, th there are increasingly these small subsets of patients, you know, high tumor mutation burden being another one. And um, so I just want to point that one out. Absolutely. 
So I wanted to just save just a little bit of time here at the end to discuss a few things. And Surat, you touched on one of the things I actually wanted to discuss was the antibody drug conjugates. Aditya, uh, I know that you've done a lot of work with the antibody drug conjugates as well, but you know, particularly for that population that maybe isn't really benefiting from endocrine therapy anymore, you know, functionally we're treating them very similar to triple negatives. And, and we know in this setting that single agent chemotherapy is not giving huge benefits. How, how do you see the antibody drug conjugates fitting in here, Aditya, and which ones are you looking forward to in the pike? Yeah, you stole words out of my mouth. I was going to say the same thing that uh, biologically over time, ear positive tumors functionally become ER negative. So agents that work in the triple negative breast cancer setting would work. And we use chemotherapy that's used in triple negative breast cancer, be it in taxanes or capecitabine or iribulin uh, in this setting. So there's interest in antibody drug conjugates for these uh, endocrine resistant tumors in the later line setting. There are two in particular that I would highlight. The first being uh, trope 2 ADCs, which is uh, an antigen that's overexpressed in both ear positive disease as well as triple negative breast cancer. And uh, we have an FDA approved agent, sasituzumab govitecan for triple negative breast cancer. The phase three trial evaluating this agent for ER positive breast cancer has completed enrollment. So over the next few months, we should be seeing the top line results. And a similar trope to antibody drug conjugate is datopotumab duroxetan, very long name. These antibody drug conjugates have long names, uh, also called datodxd, which is slightly different from sasituzumab govitecan, both in terms of payload as well as the linker. The other class of ADCs are uh, HER2-directed ADCs. Traditionally, we've considered HER2-positive breast cancer as tumors that uh, amplify HER2 in terms of uh, the HER2 gene. But even tumors that do not have HER2 gene amplification that have some expression of HER2, like IHC 1+, plus 2+, plus, uh, potentially uh, could be targets with uh, antibody drug conjugates because for an antibody drug conjugate, all you need is expression of the protein to allow delivery of the payload. So there's interest in HER2 antibody drug conjugates for these so-called HER2 low ear positive breast cancers. Uh, Trastuzumab duroxetan being the front runner in this setting, but there are other ADCs as well. Uh, that target her to and have some bystander effect. So I think we're going to see more and more of ADC development uh, in this space as well. Thanks, Aditya. I think that's really helpful. Sarat, I may direct a question back to you a bit. How do you make the decision based on clinical or pathological features, et cetera, who, you know, post-AI CDK4-6, you want to continue with endocrine therapy or even in the third line versus who you think may be resistance and needs to switch to a different class of agents? Yeah, that, it's a, such a clinical dilemma, I think. I mean, we all struggle with these decisions. Should we give another shot at uh, one of these endocrine agents that we know is available either as a trial or standard of care? Or should we switch to something that's more uh, chemotherapy-like. And, and um, while our patients and, and we want to give, you know, always the least toxic, greatest benefit kind of therapy, we also um, want something that works. And so, uh, I, you know, we, we tend to go with our clinical intuition um, a, a lot in terms of was this progressing rapidly? Um, was this in, you know, progressing in visceral sites um, can we sort of get a leg up on the cancer before revisiting something like endocrine therapy? Um, 
There are some growing sort of uh, features that we can also use, such as what uh, you and Aditya alluded to with, with um, low ER expression, potentially even uh, if you had sub intrinsic subtyping, whether this was a basal-like um, you know, uh, subtype. These are features that are telling us something that we're probably seeing clinically either in the scans or in the biology um, in, in other ways and, and, and just the way it progressed. Uh, so we're using a lot of the information, but we don't have necessarily a quantitative way of saying, you know, who should be bin to what. So I'm going to ask one more question, kind of open to both of you. You know, one of our big problems in the adjuvant setting really is adherence to endocrine therapy. And that's for a lot of patients because it's not very well tolerated, whether it's the arthralgias or sexual side effects, et cetera. You know, knowing what you know from the oral surge now, do you see a role in the adjuvant setting? Do you think that they are going to have better tolerability without the arthralgias, et cetera? Um, do you think the GI issues are going to be a problem in the adjuvant setting? Try to predict the future for me here. And it's funny you say that. There's actually a trial, uh, Amira 06, that's looking at this exact question. Uh, Amsonestrant appears to be better tolerated and does not have the side effect of arthralgias. So it'll evaluate this oral CERD in patients who discontinue adjuvant AIs because of side effects to see if there would be benefit in that setting. So I agree. I think these surges have a different AE profile, particularly related to arthralgias. So in patients who have difficulty tolerating AIs, might be another option for that patient if validated in clinical trials. Yeah, Sarat, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, I agree. I think that we have to remember that um, we're often asking our patients to blindly take therapy that we don't know that they actually even need. Um, and so it's easy to sort of think, do I really need this last two years when I don't even know that there's any cancer there? Um, and I'm dealing with a daily side effect um, that's impairing my life and those that, that counts. And so there are some side effects as you guys alluded to. I would also mention there may be differentials in terms of the degree to which some of these cause um, uh, vaginal dryness and, and sexual side effects. And that may be really uh, a powerful way in which some of these agents can discriminate and, and may be um, superior. So, Great. I think that's a, a perfect spot to end on. So on behalf of Peerview, thank you for joining us uh, to talk about uh, ER-positive metastatic disease and some of these novel agents. And I certainly thank uh, Aditya and Surat for joining me. Thank you so much. Thank you, Erica. Thank you. This activity is certified by Medical Learning Institute, Incorporated. This activity is developed with our educational partner, PVI, Peerview Institute for Medical Education. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash HCA860. This activity is supported by educational grants from Azi Incorporated, Sanofi Genzyme, and Stemline, a Menarini Group company.